The scripture reading is Colossians chapter 2, verses 6 through 15. Let's hear the word of the Lord. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him, who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised, with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh, by the circumcision of Christ having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross, He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together once more as we we come to God's word together. Father, we're grateful for your word this morning. Thank you that uh, we have the opportunity to look more closely at it. Thank you that you have revealed your son fully and sufficiently to us in this word. And we pray that that we would come to know him this morning. We pray that we would hear from him. We ask that you would send your spirit to work with your word to accomplish the purpose that you would desire. And we ask that we would come away changed this morning. And we would come away uh, beholding Christ in all his glory and all his sufficiency even more. And we pray that, uh, that you would remove distractions and that you would uh, meet us in the midst of uh, our doubts and struggles, uh, those things that might keep us from hearing from you this morning. And we thank you for your love for us and your promise to do us good. And we pray that you would do that now uh, through, uh, through these words. In Christ's name, amen. Uh, Jeanette and I are celebrating our 10th wedding anniversary this year. I thought there were some cheers there or something. Um, but here's the thing you won't want to cheer for. We have only seen one movie in the theaters together in 10 years of marriage. So things are pretty rough right now, right? Um, that one movie that we've seen, we just don't go to movies in the theaters, that's all. We do other stuff. The one movie that we've seen is The Notebook. Even worse. Uh, based on a Nicholas Sparks book, if you're not familiar with it, I think it came out in 2004, the year that we got married, and it's this standard love story about this guy named Noah who continues to pursue this woman that he loves whose name is Allie. And it's kind of your your standard love story. There are all sorts of things that happen through the course uh, of their eventually coming together. She's engaged to somebody else for a while. That doesn't work out. And they finally end up together. Standard love story. But what's a little bit unique about this movie is that throughout the movie, it's being narrated by this elderly man who's reading this story out of a notebook. Get it? The notebook. And he's reading to this woman who's suffering from Alzheimer's in a nursing home. 
And so uh, he, he continues to, to read this story to her, and it's as though she's hearing this story for the first time. It seems as though that's happening. But then we in the audience realize that, in fact, she is the woman in the story. She is Allie, who's hearing this. And Noah is the one who's now this elderly gentleman who's reading to her. And it's, it's pretty tough to watch when you start thinking about how sad it would be that she's gotten to this point where because of this devastating disease, she can't remember any of these things. She's hearing the story of her life, and it sounds as though it's for the very first time for her. But what's incredible about this story, I I hate that I'm talking so positively about the notebook, by the way. (laughs) What really is beautiful about it, though, is how dedicated this man is to reminding his wife of who she is and of who they are as a couple, reminding them, reminding her of their story, that, that she is his wife, that he is her husband, that they have a past together, they've got a family, they've got this life together, and he doesn't want her to forget it. And so he's going to continue to remind her of this, even if it seems like it's totally pointless. He must remind her Of it. What we have in this passage this morning is a section where Paul wants to remind us of our past as well. And I promise this is the last time I will compare the gospel to the notebook. Okay? But the reason he does this, though, and this is where there is a parallel, is because we are prone to forget our story as well. We're prone to forget specifically all that we have in Christ. And this was the problem that the Colossians were facing. And I think that uh, if you've been a Christian for a long time, I think this is a particular temptation for you. You tend to forget. You're prone to forget all that you have in Jesus. The newness and the wonder of the promises of the gospel begin to wear off. Your heart grows cold. Things start to get routine maybe even ritualistic, and you start thinking that uh, you don't remember all that you have in Jesus. That's the danger that the Colossians are facing. It's the danger we face. And so what Paul does here is to remind them of what they have in Christ. If you look at verses 6 and 7, he gives that this theme of this section, but it's really the rest of the letter. Look back and see what he says there. He says, Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him, rooted and built up in Him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. He says you are rooted, built up in Him. You are established in Him. So walk in Him. Carry on in Him. And the rest of the letter, for the most part, is an outworking of this theme. Is Paul explaining this to us. So what is, the, what is a summary of this theme and this section? It's this. You are complete in Christ, so continue in Him. You are complete in Christ, so continue in Him. You have everything you need in Him, so continue in Him. And that's what they and we are in danger of forgetting. And so Paul in this passage reminds us and them of three things in particular And these are printed for you in the bold. And he wants you to remember that, one, you have been filled in Christ. Secondly, that you have shared in the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. And then finally, you have been forgiven in Christ. 
But before we jump in here, I want you to notice the way that those three things are stated. They're stated in the past tense and passive voice. Why would that matter? It matters because what we need to see is that these are all things that Jesus has accomplished for us. He's done these things for us. This is all of grace. There are implications for that. That's why he says, so walk in them. But what we need to know is that God has moved towards us first. And so what we need to be reminded of is that these things are true of you because Jesus has accomplished them for you. These are things that God has done. And so that's where we'll start is to see what He's done and we'll fight to remember these things. So first, you've been filled in Christ. And if you look at verse 8, you see how he begins this section. He's got a command here against being deceived by this false teaching. He says, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. We talked some last week about how it's not totally clear as to what this false teaching actually is, but this is one of the most descriptive statements of it in Colossians. And I think we could say, based on the next couple verses, that what it really is, is an attempt to be filled. It's an attempt to be filled, whatever else it is. This philosophy that appeals to human tradition and to these elemental spirits is an attempt to deal with the emptiness of living in a fallen world. And I think that's a really helpful thing to consider because we have that same sense of emptiness. This is a place where I think we can identify really well and that there is this sense of emptiness of living in a fallen world. You know that the world's not right. You know that we are not right. You know that something's missing. And so the human tendency is to do anything and everything we can to fill up that emptiness, to deal with that emptiness in some way. And the hope is that if I could just find whatever that one thing is, I could deal with the sense of emptiness and loss in my life. And there are all sorts of ways that we do this. For the Colossians here, according to to Paul... They're pursuing this, this philosophy that, that contains some kind of Jewish elements, but there are also these mystical elements as well, which is why he, he talks about these elemental spirits of the world, which are some sort of powers that were at work at this time. And the problem, though, is that they're trying to be filled with something apart from Christ. And that's what Paul is pointing out to them. What does this look like for us? What might this be for us? How do we seek to deal with that emptiness? This could be anything. A few possibilities. It could be relationships. If I just had the right relationships, if I had somebody that cared for me, if I was in a romantic relationship, then the sense of emptiness would be done away with and I'd be filled. It could be through achievement or success in your career. If I could attain this point in my career... That emptiness, that nagging sense of emptiness will go away and I'll be filled. Uh, One of the most common, this is one that I feel often, is that if we could just be busy enough, then we could deal with that sense of emptiness. If I just have something to do and remain busy enough, I can fight this feeling of emptiness. There uh, There was an article in the New York Times about 18 months ago that was called The Busyness Trap. 
Here's a quote from this article. It was really, uh, really insightful as to why we are busy and the problems that come with it. Here's what this says. Busyness serves as a kind of existential reassurance, a hedge against emptiness. Obviously, your life cannot possibly be silly or trivial or meaningless if you are so busy, completely booked, in demand every hour of the day. Pretty accurate. Just keep going on to the next thing, keep doing something else, and you can push away that sense of emptiness. What's the problem? Well, there are a couple problems with this and with this false teaching that Paul is pointing out here. One problem is this. Paul says that this philosophy itself is empty. And actually, the NIV translates that first phrase as a hollow and deceptive philosophy. It won't work. You know from your own attempts that relationships or success or busyness doesn't actually work in the end, and that's exactly what Paul is pointing out here. It's not going to fill up that empty place like you hope it would. Why? Because it's not according to Christ. Christ is the only one who can fill us in that way. What's the other problem? The other problem, he says, is that this hollow and deceptive philosophy will actually take you captive. It will enslave us in some way. And this makes complete sense of our experience as well. If you think about, uh, there's this, this idea, this lie that we believe that if I could just be a little bit busier or if I just had a little bit better of a relationship or I just had a little bit more success, then I'll be okay. And before you know it, you've become enslaved to that in the hopes that the... the they will deliver on these promises that they can't. What does Paul say to them and to us? He says, let me remind you of something. Jesus alone can fill you. He alone can fill you. He alone can deal with that emptiness, that sense of meaninglessness of your life. And if you're here exploring Christianity, that is the claim of the Bible. That you are made for God and that your heart, in the words of Augustine, will continue to be restless until it finds its rest in God. That is how you are made. And to look elsewhere is going to be a vain attempt at being filled. And he gives a couple reasons why this is so. Verse 9 He says that it is in Christ that the fullness of deity dwells. Jesus is fully God. Why would that matter? It matters because He is the one who has made you. And He alone then can satisfy you because He made you for Himself. He is fully God and He alone can satisfy you. But He says also in verse 10 that He is the head of all rule and authority. He is the King. He is the one through whom all these powers were created, he said back in Colossians 1. And so he is the one who can satisfy these deepest longings because he is the one who is King and Lord over all. And not only that, he says here, you have already been filled in him. You already have had that emptiness and that meaninglessness dealt with by Jesus because he himself has filled you. And Paul wants to say to us, we must remember that. Remember that you have been filled in Christ. So secondly, second thing he wants to remind us of is that you have shared in the death, 
burial, and resurrection of Christ. And this gets a little more confusing here uh, in in terms of the the language of verses 11 through about the first half of verse 13. A couple basic truths that he's giving to us here. One is this. You have died and were buried with Christ. And then secondly, that you have been raised with Christ. What does he mean? Well, look back first to verses 11 and 12. He says, In him you also were circumcised with the circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh, by the circumcision of Christ. Okay, what's going on in all this language here? He's not talking about literal circumcision here. That's why he says you were circumcised with a circumcision without hands. Okay? It's not a physical circumcision. He's talking about circumcision of the heart. But notice here where and how that's been experienced. It's experienced in Christ. And he says it's by the, it's by the death of Christ. This is what he, why he says by putting off the body of the flesh and of the circumcision of Christ. He's not talking about Christ's literal circumcision What he's pointing to with both of those phrases, which are saying the same thing, is that these point to the ultimate circumcision of Christ, which was his crucifixion. So this points to Jesus' death. So we have shared in the benefits of that ultimate circumcision of Christ, which is the cross. We have died with him. And then he says in verse 12 that we've been buried with him. And Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 emphasizes the burial of Christ. Why would he do that? Because it guarantees that he actually died. It guarantees that. It is a certainty that he died. So much so that he was buried. And that's Paul's point. He wants us to see that we share in this death. Now, uh, that, that needs some application there. What does that mean for us? Why would that matter? What's he saying to us? He wants us to see that you have died to sin in Jesus just as Christ in His death died to sin. You have died to sin in Christ just as He in His death died to sin. And what that means is that you are no longer a slave to sin. It means that by the death of Christ, the power of sin in your life has been broken It died with Christ. This is actually Paul's point in Romans 6, where he says that sin doesn't reign over us anymore. Here's what he says. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. You have been set free from sin. You have died to sin. You are no longer a slave. So he wants us to see that's the significance of having died with him. But then he says we've also been raised with him in verse 12 and 13. And he makes this incredible statement in verse 13. He says, God made alive together with him. You have shared in the resurrection of Jesus. Why would that matter? How does that make any difference for us? It means this. You have died to sin You've been raised with Christ, which means that there is actual hope for change in your life. There is real hope for real change. And I want to slow down a bit here because I know so, so many of us in this room need to hear that this morning. Because there are certain parts of your life on which you have given up on. 
You have, you've given up hope that particular struggles in your life could ever see any real substantial change. Whatever that area might be. To think about that particular struggle or addiction that feels so overwhelmingly powerful that you have no hope anymore of that changing and you've said, that's just who I am. Here's what Paul says to you this morning. He has said, you have been raised with Christ. And that same power that was at work in Jesus to raise Him from the grave is the same power that's at work in you now by the Holy Spirit. That exact same power. That means that real change is possible. But I I know even there, there are a couple of ways that we can fall off the side of this statement and mishear what Paul's saying. One is to kind of take a triumphal sort of approach to this. And so you hear that and you think, well, great, I'm done with sin. I'm not going to struggle anymore. I'm expecting then to be changed overnight, immediately and completely, and I'm done with it. Obviously, that's not what he's saying. He's not saying that, that, that before he returns, we will be completely and utterly free of this. But there's another danger, and I think this is probably where most of us are, and that's one of cynicism. And that's that right now, as I was saying those things, you are thinking, yeah, right. I've been a Christian long enough. I've struggled deeply enough with this thing that I know that I will not really change. It could be a deep enslavement or addiction to pornography. It could be something where your desires are so skewed and misdirected that you think there's no way that this could ever be changed because it feels at the core of who I am. It could be that you are so enslaved to food, whether it's eating too much or too little, as a desire to have some sense of control over your life that you can't imagine life apart from that struggle. If that's you this morning, and I would guess that most of us probably tend more towards that cynical side, you need to hear this. Jesus rose from the dead. Jesus was dead and He came alive. This is one of the most incredible statements that could ever be made. Jesus was dead and He has come alive. And the question for us is, do we believe that? Because what Paul says is that Jesus has risen from the grave and that very power is now at work in you. And that means that while this change won't happen immediately or overnight, but that there is actual, real, substantial hope for progress even in those dark areas of your life. And we've got to remember that. And it's by merely putting our faith in Christ. And he mentions baptism here, which is symbolizing all of these things. Into Christ, then, you have everything that you need. You are complete in Him. You have the resources for change. Because Jesus has risen from the grave and you shared in that. You're dead to sin and you are alive to God. So He wants us to remember we are filled in Christ. He wants us to remember that we have shared in His death and His resurrection. And finally, Paul wants to remind you, you have been forgiven in Christ. You see this in the the final few verses. Take a look at the end of verse 13. Having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us 
with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. What he does here is he reminds us of one of the most beautiful, most cherished truths of the Christian faith. You have been forgiven for all of your sins in Christ. It is one of the most fundamental truths and one that we can so easily forget or neglect or ignore or fail to believe. Paul wants you to remember that this morning. Notice the extent of this forgiveness. This is important. Paul says you have been forgiven for all of your trespasses. All of your sins. Every one of your sins has been forgiven. Not some, not just some in your past, not just those that are socially acceptable. You've been forgiven for all of your sins. And I know for some of us, this is the thing you are most prone to forget. Because when I say something like that and emphasize the all of your sins, you immediately think of that one habit or that one struggle that you're even struggling to believe that you'd be dead to. You're thinking of that one sin that nobody knows about or at least knows the extent to which you struggle with that. The one that keeps you up at night. The one that you are deeply, deeply ashamed of. The one that you want to take to your grave never having told anybody about. The dark, ugly parts of your heart. Think about that particular sin. What about that one? Am I really forgiven for that? What Paul says to you with the authority speaking on behalf of Jesus is that you are especially forgiven for that sin. Jesus has died for all of your trespasses, even that one that you are utterly ashamed of, the one that you can't bear to look at. Jesus has died for that sin. He has forgiven all of your trespasses. Your sin, even that dark sin, is no match for the grace of Jesus. Jesus' grace wins out every single time, and it always will. Paul wants you to be reminded of that this morning. And the reason that is so is because of what he's done. It says he has done this by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. That is vivid imagery of how Jesus has dealt with our sins. That verb could actually be translated wiped clean. He's taken your sins and he's done away with them. He's taken them and he has nailed them to the cross. That is where they've been dealt with. And so this is what Psalm 103 is talking about in verse 12 when David says, As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. You have been declared permanently not guilty. Permanently. All of your sins have been dealt with. And maybe the biggest struggle that we have in this realm is the fact that most of the time we don't feel forgiven. Thanks for this, I don't feel that way. What do we do in those moments where you don't feel the truth of that statement? The most basic thing to do is exactly what Paul does here. He points us to the cross. He says, look at the cross. When you're tempted to doubt that you are forgiven, when you're tempted to think that your sin is greater than His grace, look to the cross. Because Jesus knows the worst about you. 
He knows the worst things about you, those dark places in your heart. He knows them better than you, and He is not repelled by them. He moves towards you in love, and the cross shows that. That's the extent to which He was willing to go to make you His child, to draw you to Himself, to bring you in and assure you that you are forgiven. And your forgiveness is as certain as His death on the cross. Remember that. When you're tempted to look elsewhere, remember that. You are forgiven in Him. So back to the notebook here. Uh, Towards the end of the movie, there's this moment where after he has read this story, their story, many hours to Allie, she remembers for a moment. She has this moment where her eyes brighten and she, she remembers that this is about her. This is her story. And Noah is her husband. And this lasts for only 90 seconds or so. But she has this moment where it all comes home to her. And it's really moving to, to see her uh, remember this and she forgets again. What Paul is doing in this passage for us is to continue to remind us so that those moments last well beyond just a sporadic memory. But that it becomes the reality in which we live. So that God would never retire of reminding us of all that we have in Christ. That is the way in which we can push back against these other ways in which we would attempt to be filled, other ways that we would attempt to deal with our sin, both in its power and in its guilt. There's a great line in in the well-known hymn, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing, that speaks of this tendency that we have to forget. And then this is a prayer, and it could be our prayer. It says, Let thy goodness, like a fetter, bind my wandering heart to thee. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart. Oh, take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. You have everything you need in Christ. You are complete in Him. So continue in Him. Pray for us. Father, thank You for all that You've done for us in Jesus. Thank You for the grace that is ours in Him. Thank You that there is no other place where we could go to have and receive what He has given to us and what we have in Him. Remind us of that, we pray. In His name, Amen.